Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. We begin season 13 of Electric Bookaloo, or maybe it's season 14. It doesn't matter. You're not keeping track, and neither am I. Okay, so we're at the exact middle of Clash of Kings, and things are really going to heat up. Uh, this week, I have a father-son duo. You'll remember Dr. Keith Kelly, author of Power and Subversion of Game of Thrones. Make sure you pick that up wherever you buy books. And this week, Dr. Kelly has his son Brayden with him. Brayden has a degree in English literature. He's professionally a librarian. He is a published poet and... We talk a little bit about his career as a game designer. Anyway, these two are really fun, and this is a really fun chapter because we see the entrance of the shadow monster, and we see the departure of Renly Baratheon. Before we get into the chapter, I do want to mention again that I'm still hoping to put together a fantasy league for House of the Dragon Season 2 that pits various podcasters against each other, but... I got a couple emails suggesting interest in a listener's league. So this would be sort of an auction. We come up with categories to measure the different characters in House of the Dragon Season 2. And the participants would just be me and a few listeners of this podcast. This league will run parallel to the podcaster's league. We'll do a $100 buy-in for 11 participants. And because I don't like money to be exclusionary... We'll do two slots at a $20 buy-in. So let me know if that is helpful to you. Shoot me an email this week, and we'll hammer out the league, and we'll uh, come up with a time we can all sit down for a a couple hours and auction together. Anyway, if you have interest, book at baldmove.com. Without further ado, here is Keith and Brayden Kelly. So something new this week, Dr. Keith Kelly and his son. We have a father-son duo this week, and we've already met um, Dr. Kelly in a previous podcast. So let's start with you, Braden. What is what is it that you do, and uh, and what's your interest in? I guess fantasy literature slash Game of Thrones. Sure. Yeah, I uh, currently uh, work as a librarian at in uh, Salt Lake. Fantastic. And. Uh, I, my degree is in creative writing, and I consider myself to be primarily a writer and game designer. Tell me about game design. Yeah, I, uh, I've been playing games all my life, uh, lots of tabletop role-playing games. My dad introduced me to D&D very young. And over the years, I made my own little tweaks and adjustments to things more and more as the years went on until eventually I got the crazy notion that maybe I could do this, maybe not better, but my own way. And uh, started getting into developing my own board games, social deduction games, tabletop role games. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you had sort of an early and eager interest in uh, D&D, uh, Game of Thrones was sort of a natural fit for your interests. Yes, very much so. So, what is your uh, relationship history with that story? Well, I was pretty young when it started coming out, the show, I mean. And uh, I knew that people were into it. Once I got to high school, I had a couple of friends that watched it, but it wasn't something that I myself was into yet. And then my freshman year of college, uh, my dad told me, hey, look, the last season is going to be coming out. Here's the HBO login. You got to watch this. <laughs> yeah. And so I actually saw the uh, show before I read the books. Loved the show. And then I went and read uh, read the books as well. I didn't quite finish the books. I made it uh, halfway through the third. Okay. Book. Well, I mean, those are the best. The, the, the first three are the best. Of, of the That's book. what I've heard, yeah. So, uh, so, Keith, Father of the Year. You win the award for Father of the Year. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. One of the contributors in my book, and Braden said this earlier, I mean, the, the Game of Thrones is so much a part of the American zeitgeist. Mm. But Braden was coming in right at the very end, watching all of them to prepare for the last season. Which yeah, I binge binge watch seasons one through seven in my dorm room, and but even still, I, I was so aware of how many people were talking about it as the show was coming out. Yeah, it was, was at watching. that point. It was really a cultural moment, and sure. uh, it was hard to miss it. I mean, right. you 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 were you're seeing like 
you know, product placement in the NBA and the MLB, and it was just all over the place. Yeah. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. All right. Well, here's what I like to do. I would like to read my synopsis of the chapter, and then we can kind of fill in the blanks. Cat and a few lieutenants have found an abandoned village with a simple sept. Cat prays and reflects on Cersei and Ned's death and her children and a few others. Before dawn, the group rides back to Renly's encampment. Cat begs a word with the would-be king while he talks chivalry and hostage strategy. Finally, Renly hears Cat's final plea for peace, but he stays the course, intending to defeat Stannis honorably. While Brienne armors her king, a shadow enters the tent and stabs Renly in the neck. Brienne the assumed killer fights for her life before fleeing with Catelyn's company. So, Brayden Kelly, let's start with you. What did you? Uh, what What most interested you about this chapter? One of the things that stuck out to me right away about the chapter is the use of color. Obviously, color is ah. very prominent anytime Renly's around. Obviously, literally, you have his rainbow guard. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Catelyn in the beginning of the chapter. She's got those, the charcoal drawings of the seven. And when she rides back into the camp, she describes it gray men on gray horses. Everything uh -huh. is sort of subdued, reflecting her mood as she's largely, you know, in the sept. She seems to be rather depressed about the way things are turning out for her. But towards the end of the chapter, starting sort of as we enter Renly's tent, and then as she rides out, there's quite a bit more color. As she rides back out through the camp, she describes the color vivid colors and the banners and the silver and the landscapes and yeah it's dawn is just breaking yeah yeah renly's tent is lit from within and uh renly he doesn't just want to go into battle well prepared he wants to look good <laughs> right. going into battle so his, his armor's like deep green i think I think uh, Kat describes it sort of the the, the green of uh, summer leaves. Yes, something like that. And so you really you you know you got the the plum color of the purple, and Brienne is described as Brienne the blue at one point. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I wonder, do you think that there's a contrast there with the sept? 
because the sept is notably like uh almost colorless yeah i do think so i think that um and my father and i have talked about this in the past it's not as specifically here but the seven are very inactive as a as a as a religion as deities we can see the power throughout the mm. books of the lord of light very overtly we can see powers that we can ascribe to the old gods and i think that when she's in the sept the seven are are rather mundane and she's really reminiscing over a lot of the negative things that have happened to her of course and, and i think that the lack of color there is just really highlighting the sort of dismal mindset that she's mm. in so all right that's that's kind of fascinating so maybe the dullness of the sept kind of reflects her mood right she's kind of becoming this creature of vengeance and dust and- yeah what she says at one point, uh, or thinks to herself, when they killed Ned, they killed me. Yeah, right, yes. She's already a creature of death, literally, right? Yes. So she's in a place that kind of reflects that character. And then, you know, when she returns to Renly's tent, you've got all these colors and action, you know, shit's going to happen now. <laughs> right? Yes. You know, we're not dealing with, like, you know, pretend gods. We're dealing with, like, a real shadow monster, so the story is going to absolutely kind of jump, start jumping off the page. Right. And yet, that's when the real death happens. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that that is, that is described so vividly. You really do feel like, the, you know, the, the red blood bubbling from the neck. And you kind of feel like all of that death, which is a pretty dark theme. Of course, yeah. And yet it's it's described in sort of technicolor. When Braden mentioned this to me about color, my first thought was, oh, gr- of course, he, you know, as a, the writer, he's going to go to the craft. And while my undergraduate degree was creative writing and I do a little bit of writing, I'm, I'm much more an academic um, now than the, the creative side. Um, and I started thinking about it and think, oh, yes, because it sets off Renly and the people around him as these vibrant, colorful um, beacons. His tent is like a lantern, mm. and it's shining there. Um, and true to, to Martin and um, Game of Thrones in general, uh, is that expectation of, oh, Renly is hope, Renly is color, he is uh, he, he's the, the positive force in this otherwise bleak environment is snuffed out um right yeah just immediately snuffed out in this act of of violence wickedness and and evil i mean the shadow uh, the shadow beast that kills him it's like oh there there clearly is is no room for this Renly, Renly's actually the good guy yeah and if you think about the different <laughs> the different kings yeah. vying for the throne from a from an ethical and moral standpoint, Ridley's the best of them. I think that that might be true. I think we could probably interrogate that a bit, but I also think like in this chapter, he presents as the the voice of chivalry. You know, he presents right. as kind of like, well, I'm not going to attack before dawn. We agreed on, uh, you know, we on right, a time, right. and I, I'm not going to be. And I think that there's you could say, well, he's just sort of a master politician. He doesn't want the perception. Right. of something that is dishonorable. And yet, you know, he does say, I don't want my my brother's head paraded around if, if he gets beheaded. Uh, I want you to, you know, bring in, sell me alive if you find him. Uh, yeah, I do. Th- in this particular chapter, he is sort of the voice of chivalry. Right. And yet, and that that's exactly the kind of person that has to die in Martin's world. <laughs> right. Right, because you have Ned, of course, and I think Ned is chivalry to his to his core mm-hmm. and honorable. Like you point out, Renly's basically saying, I I don't want it said of me that I won by deceit. I don't remember exactly the line, but it's not that he's I I don't want to win by deceit, which Ned would say. Renly is I don't want it said of me. <laughs> so he is the politic version in yeah, some ways right. of Ned, but of course <laughs> that can't be tolerated much longer than Ned's true sort of chivalry. 
um, and and he's he's yeah. yeah. I think of all now, Braden. I want to hear your take on this too. But my feeling is that of all of the options, Renly is the best king, in the sense that like he knows how to play politics. He knows how to you know be self-effacing when he needs to. He knows how to. Yeah, don't you don't have to call me uh, your grace for the moment. Let's just bargain. He's sort of chivalry in the way that Ned was, but he's also a real politic kind of guy, and he just looks the part. You know, he looks like Robert Baratheon reborn. He's just the ideal vision of what a king should look like in this world. What do you think about that? Oh yes, I I very much agree. I think that Renly is, I think, pragmatic. He does represent this sort of noble ideal that Ned represents perhaps too strongly to be, you know, obviously he represents, represents it too strongly in order to be successful, but Renly represents this ideal of a noble king. He personally represents the image, but he also has a pragmatism that I think that he, like you said, plays politics. I think he'd be more willing and able to make the hard decisions that Ned might not be able to make because Ned is by his nature uncompromising. Mm-hmm. And I think that Renly would be both a good king and also a, you know, a good administrator, which is of course part of being a good king, but he knows, he knows how it really works. So we've got sort of a, a, a spectrum of possible Kings and they all have sort of a fatal deficiency. You could criticize you know Ned yeah. Ned for being too honorable or you could criticize Robert for you know not caring about perception you could criticize you know Rob for being too young uh I mean you, everyone's kind of got a fatal flaw if Renly does have a fatal flaw what do you think it is either one of you That's an interesting question uh, because I mean you didn't talk about Stannis I think Stannis's fatal flaw is his absolute rigidity um of a different sort than Ned's, but yeah. A different sort than Ned's, right. Um, I don't I don't know that Renly, if you were to say, okay, let's put together, build a, a, a king who could be both a, a decent king and an effective king, what's wrong with Renly? I don't know. I think, I don't know that there is one. I mean, right. I personally can't think of a fatal flaw. I think the big thing is that... Um, if you take out the factor of you know the use of magic mm-hmm. to to assassinate him i don't think that i don't know that Renly would have lost that's, that's, i think you're exactly right about that i think that the show wants to present him with a flaw in the sense like he can't produce an heir and so he's sort of repulsed by marjorie and all that that's not in the book there's nothing in the book that would suggest that just because he might be attracted to loris that he couldn't also produce an heir and so that's kind of a show only creation right um yes in rereading this chapter uh for this episode i i was reminded again of of the stark difference between the portrayal of renly in uh in the in the books versus in the show In in the show he i never and of course like i said i saw the show first so that's colored mm -hmm, my perception of him he he doesn't seem very he doesn't seem very capable he seems in the show to be very young and to be sort of uh, petulant mm-hmm. yeah i don't want my brother to be king so i'm going to start my own rebellion yeah i think i think that's right and i think i think that in the book his fatal flaw is that he's a younger brother and so yeah, i think it's the illegitimacy yeah. in the sense that he is jumping yeah the the order of things. Yeah. So he, ha- but he's already kind of overcome that because he's got the biggest army and he's got all these lords that are willing to overlook that. So while his fatal flaw is that maybe he's got a, the weakest claim to the throne out of the lot of them, it doesn't really matter. And the only thing, the only reason why he doesn't wind up on the Iron Throne is, uh, because this is a pretend story. <laughs> yes, because right. Because there's it, because there's a, a shadow monster, right? Right. Well, this is an interesting thing that I've talked about a bit, um, and it, it uh, it's addressed in in the book. Um, 
how magic works in Game of Thrones. Um, and in any in, in a lot of given instances, magic is an utter game changer. Um, you know, this this being one, Jon Snow's resurrection, you know, as we get into the show, being another. In the books, Catelyn is resurrected. Magic has these moments of real potency that can utterly change the uh, the course of events, um, which was one of my complaints about the way the show ended mm. in that ultimately magic was completely impotent in determining the outcome. Right, yeah. Uh, it just sort of fades away. Uh, the Night King was hi- highly magical, is killed off, and it ends up being Bran becoming king in part because he's magical, but that magic did nothing to bring about the ending. Yeah, I think that the show wants to paint Bran as, uh, you know, he he has the best narrative, and that's there's no, there's nothing magical about that. Um, I mean, it wasn't like, well, we have to choose Bran because he has uh, the memory banks of a thousand years of history, and who else should be? King? Right. You know, th- there's nothing about right, him. Right. He he doesn't become a great warrior in the end because of his magic. So yeah, I think this is one of those times though that you know these, these first couple of books the magic is very very sparing, uh, but this is one of those times where the magic absolutely changes the course of what might have happened otherwise. Right. And, and- oh, definitely. Yeah, so I, I do think this is one of those scenes that reminds us that in the books, as opposed to the show, magic can play this r- real course-changing role because this is this is sudden and the magic this is really evil magic. It does make a stark difference, cast a stark difference between Stannis and Renly. Renly won't even attack before the the agreed upon time. Um, and he should have, if he had already been out, you know, marshalling to, to attack, maybe he wouldn't have been killed. Hmm. Um, and Stannis, the one who's ostensibly devoted to justice and, and rule of law and all of this, is the one who employs the dark magic to utterly cheat his brother out of the chance of deciding it on the battlefield. When it would be one thing just to use an assassin yeah. to cheat, yeah, yeah. just use an assassin, but not only to use an assassin here, but to use... A shadow creature as your agent. Yeah, there's no doubt about this. This is dirty play, <laughs> right? right. There's, no, there's no question. And and that's an interesting point, Keith. That it is, it might be Renly's honor that gets him killed because if he had taken the advice of, uh, I think, uh, Randall Tarley or uh, yeah, it, I think it was Randall said, said, "Let's attack." Yeah, now. let's attack before dawn. What? It's we're we're ready. Why not? Why not? go and he says no no we're gonna play this by the rules now i don't know that you know the shadow monster couldn't have attacked on the battlefield i don't know that all i know is that there's a reason why he was in the tent when he was and that's when the assassination happened so your point's well taken he this is all right so try this on for size i think that people misunderstand ned i think that he doesn't die because of his honor because in the end he lies he says he he was a traitor. He he want you know he's gonna he's gonna take the deal and go to the wall. He, so he's not honorable in the end. He he loses his life and his honor. Um, Renly maybe actually does die because of his honor. That, that's possible. They, they also wonder if it's not more closely related to the brother, the brother nature that he underestimates the lengths to which Stannis will go. Yeah. Of course, he couldn't have predicted this. No one, I think, even conceived of the idea of, oh, someone can create a a shadow beast that can kill you and can't be seen, touched, or how do you stop it? The only way to stop it would be if, you know, if Rimley had a um, a magician, a, a, a sorcerer of his own, yeah. sitting there to protect him from magic. Yeah, which... he, he needs. It's interesting because Renly himself points out the. Uh, the the lengths to which Stannis will go. He mentions the siege of Storm's End, in which <laughs> he'll eat rats. <laughs> oh, that's they right. eat rats, and Stannis wanted to hurl the men from the walls for trying to surrender, and that they didn't end up doing that because they may yet need to eat them. Yeah, they may need to eat human flesh rather than surrender. Right. Yeah, 
I think, though, you could make the argument that if even if Renly is not underestimating the lengths to which his brother will go in general, he perhaps underestimates the the subterfuge his brother leaves. He thinks that his brother might be more more honorable or you know consider what we discussed earlier he doesn't want stannis's head printed on on a pike and i don't think that that sentiment is shared by stannis mm, mm. okay i'm gonna play devil's advocate i'm gonna interrogate a bit on on renly's supposed honor here <clears throat> renly has a lot of a, a lot of things going for him politically uh, his, his sort of his charismatic uh, abilities uh, included, right? Um, mm-hmm. He has no right to the throne. Um, I guess you could question whether Robert had a right to the throne either, but the realm perceives the Baratheon rule, you know, that they've accepted the Baratheon rule, and the rules are that the the, the heir to the throne gets the throne. So he's got no right to this. And on top of that, there's a sort of a, an in-world ethic of kin slain, you know, killing your own brother. That's right. really taboo. Like, it, it's really a no-no. And so I'm wondering if if some of this is overstated. Like, maybe, you know, Renly's just good at politics. He's not a man of honor. He's just he, he just knows how things look, and he knows how to manipulate those perceptions. Yeah, you could break it down to, like, I think Ned is a, a, a good man. He's morally a good man. And even though there at the end he he lies, the, the motivation is a good one. Mm. So he's devoted to, to his morality, I think, significantly more than Renly is. Renly is more devoted to chivalry, which is a social code, and social codes mm. really only have currency as viewed from the society. Mm, okay. Right. So Renly, I don't think is as good morally or even ethically a person as, uh, as Ned yeah. is, but he is arguably just as sh- chivalrous though. He holds chivalry as its kind of social idea. Whereas Ned, I think holds to chivalry because of its moral idea. And if we think of the role of chivalry in the middle ages, the, those two were distinct. You have you know, chivalric knights who were devoted to it because of its idea of of goodness, mm. and you had chivalric knights who were devoted to it because it was social currency. <laughs> so, so we have. I think we, there's the idea that Ned would do the right thing no matter uh-huh. what would be thought of him, whereas Renly might do what people think was most right. That here we have the I think the difference between. Uh, Winterfell piety and King's Landing piety. <laughs> right. Good way to put it, yeah. the, the latter of which is kind of a shell, right? <laughs> I do want to talk about piety. I feel like um, if you if you're willing to to move on to a different topic, sure, yeah. Um, I think that maybe we have the most earnest display of piety in this chapter. Uh, I you know I I don't know if Cat is the most pious person we've met. I think that Melisandre, you know, she at this point at least she's a true believer and she seems to be an inherent. Uh, I guess Miri Mazdur, you could you could say she's willing to die for her piety, mm. but we really haven't seen a very robust depiction of what it means to be a devotee to the seven gods. Or the the one god with seven aspects, we don't we didn't re- we haven't really seen what happens inside of a sept yet, and we we get this really vivid, and earnest vision of cat, uh, in a sept, and uh, you know we we mentioned the the colorless bit of the the sept before. I think septs are supposed to be places of, you know, uh, you know, crystal refraction. So there's rainbow colors in the sept, and there's incense, and there's, I would imagine, many people coming and going. But this is just a sort of abandoned village. So all of those social constructs we were talking about before don't really apply. 
this is Cat, what Cat wants to do in private. So we kind of see something that she cares about as a singular individual. She's not just putting on a show for other people, I, I think. Yes, and, and as I reread the chapter, I, I found that scene of, of Kat in the set to be really quite moving because it does seem to be completely genuine. Mm. Um, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not arrogant. It's self-reflective. Um, it's compassionate. I mean, she even has compassion for Cersei. Um, and it, it, now that you mention it, it does, it, it does reflect that idea of, of the pious medieval woman whose role often was to, to be the, the softer side of the, the chivalric Christian world. She's the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. She's the, the, the nurturing mother, mm-hmm. um, the mercy, the, the, the her, her plea to Renly is to gather, discuss these things. Let's make let's make peace and stop the the killing of essentially of mothers' sons, um, and and that that really you know rings true. The you know she's it, it's almost a scene like a, a nun in a convent you know before before battle. Uh, this could be you know played out multiple times in the, the real world of of the Middle Ages. I want to read this bit and. I'm going to preface it by saying that I had a guest on that was making the case that now this is sort of deep lore, but uh, that there's a definitive green scene element that runs through the Tully bloodline. And I, I read this passage and I thought, oh, I wonder if Cat has a little bit of green sight going on and and I've got two points of evidence and they're both very weak admittedly but I'll, I'll I'll present them so she's in the sept it says flickering torchlight dance across the walls making the faces seem half alive twisting them changing them the statues in the great sept of the cities wore the faces of the stone the stonemasons had given them but these charcoal scratchings were so crude that they might be anyone. The father's face made her think of her own father, dying in the bed at River Run. The warrior was Renly and Stannis and Rob and Robert, Jamie Lannister and Jon Snow. All right, pause there, and I thought, how does she know Jon Snow's a warrior? All right. Right. She even glimpsed Arya in those lines. What? How does she? She's got no idea that this is Arya. That Arya is going to become a warrior just for an instant. Then a gust of wind through the door made the torch uh, sputter, and the semblance was gone, washed away in orange in orange glare. So there's that. Just curious to me. She's sort of like projecting her own spirituality in the sept, and then she's seen a vision of story details that she should not know about. And for all she knows, Jon Snow is up at the wall, you know, cleaning latrines. And so, but, you know, she might just imagine Jon as a warrior. But then the note about Arya being a warrior, like seeing Arya's face in the face of the warrior that absolutely caught my attention. So that made me think, mm, I wonder if there is something there. Uh, you know, she, she's the one that gave birth to, to Bran, who's like the ultimate green seer. Does Cat have a little bit of green sight? Thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I've never, I've never thought of it though. As you, as you lay out your case, I could see, okay. Yeah. yeah. Th- though, if I were to p- make the counter argument, yeah. I would say, well, she knows that Jon Snow went to the wall and uh, the Night's Watch are warriors. Yeah, right? Yeah, right. She knows that Arya doesn't like to do her, her needlework and that she wants to shoot the bow and practice with a sword instead. Right. She may know things about Arya that maybe Arya didn't know about herself at first. You know, she she could be a right. parent in that way, right? So it is interesting though I I would have thought she would more when she looks to the maid, she sees Sansa or or prays uh-huh. 
for Sansa. And I would I would think that even with what she knows of Arya, I think you could make the case that should she not be seeing Arya in the maid or trying to see her in the maid and more praying to the maid that Arya be more proper, be be a better of uh, of the ide- version of the ideal lady. Yeah, I think she she does try that because it says that you know she she goes to the maid and she prays for her daughter's innocence, right? So she's true, trying, true. but it's sort of unbeckoned. This face uh, comes of up of Arya um, in the face of the warrior, and it's almost like it's in inter- the wind interrupts something that it's almost like the wind interrupts some kind of vision. Like it disturbs the vision and now she's not seeing the faces anymore. And it's one of these things that Martin does. That's kind of brilliant where it's like, you could read it as literary, you know, a literary foreshadowing, or you could read it as magic or maybe it's both. Right. So, but you're not real. A lot of times when he'll introduce magic, at first, you're like, is that magic? I'm not sure. All right. I've got another point of evidence here. All right. So okay. all right. this is how the chapter ends. She's remembering back to what Renly said. Now, Renly's dead. But she remembers that he said, I am the rightful king, he had declared. His jaw clenched hard as iron. And your son, no less a traitor than my brother here. His day will come as well. A chill went through her. Okay, so that's clearly foreshadowing, right? Rob's day will come as well. What Redley means is he's a traitor. I'm the rightful king. Eventually, I'm going to have to deal with your son. That's what he, on the surface, that's what he means. But Renly's now dead. So why does a chill go through her? If this is not a premonition, you know, for the Red Wedding or something like that. Does, does Renly say that, or does Stannis say that when the two are meeting? I, I'm, I'm oh, wait a second. Martin. Oh, okay. You're right. This is Stannis talking. I, th- I did think it was oh, Stannis. You, yeah, yeah, I, but... I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. This is It's Renly who's saying, or no, Stannis was yeah, yeah. saying it to Renly earlier. Yeah, right? this is Stannis talking remembering. to Cat. I'm the rightful. Yeah. All right. Now I'm reading this a bit differently, right? right? So now she's thinking, my son's going to have to deal with Stannis. And that explains why the chill goes through her spine. Right. Especially because now she knows that Stannis employs this dark magic. Yeah. And this is something that I was thinking earlier. When you think about what I was saying earlier with the color, it seems that the events in the tent have galvanized Catelyn into action again. When we see her in the Sept... She is praying that things will work out for her children, mm. but herself unable to help, yeah. them, unable to act in a way that will you know, bring about the the outcomes she wants. But towards the end, it seems that, as you said, shit goes yeah. down in the tent and that she has been well, galvanized that, into action. She participates. Yes. Know, she's, she's actually fighting uh, you know, to try to help Brienne in the tent. Yes, yes. And it seems that the thought that she has about, you know, okay, if Stannis did this to Renly, and he said that Rob is next, it almost seems like she has been given new purpose or renewed purpose. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 that makes sense for her character because, you know, Ned's gone. There's no way she can help him. But she thinks that she mm-hmm. might be able to help Rob. And right. and so as sort of a the protective mother, she knows more than ever that Rob is in danger, and in danger from a demonstrable wicked force. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it's interesting. You know, in the show, they make a big deal of the fact that it is Brienne who sees the shadow yeah. in the shape of Stannis and s- swears to kill him yeah. um, in in vengeance. But in the book. Brienne doesn't see it at all. It's only Cat who sees it. That's right. Also, Cat sees it originally as Renly's shadow, and she only seems to ascribe it to being Stannis' shadow after the fact. That's right. I think she, 
it, it, that's an interestingly written part because she sees it as Renly's shadow, but then somehow the shadow detaches itself from. Mm-hmm. Well, she sees the shadow raising doing. its sword, and, and then Renly's she sees not. that Renly's sword is still in his sheath. So yeah. this right. is—I think this is a wonderfully written paragraph. I'm just going to go ahead and, and you know, Martin doesn't write action very much. But when he does, it's sort of arresting, all right? So, I beg you in the name of the mother, Catelyn began with a sudden gust of wind, flung open the door. This is the second gust of wind, by the way. Um, Gust of wind flung open the door of the tent. She thought she glimpsed movement. But when she turned her head, it was only the king's shadow shifting against the silken walls. All right, now I just want to point out here that King is ambiguous. This could be Stannis's shadow. This could be Renly's shadow. She heard Renly begin a jest, his shadow moving, lifting its sword, black on green, candles guttering, shivering. Something was queer, wrong. And then she saw Renly's sword still in its scabbard, sheathed still. But the shadow sword, cold said Renly in a small, puzzled voice. A heartbeat before the steel of his gorget parted like cheesecloth beneath the shadow of a blade that was not there. He had time to make a small, thick gasp before the blood came gushing out of his throat. So that's how it's presented. And you're right. There's nothing that sort of like would suggest oh, I saw the face of Stannis in that shadow or something like that. Yeah, this this chapter did also, and as you read that, remind me that uh, Martin, particularly in the early books, is is a really good writer. He's quite the crafter of language. I, I think it's, as the books go on, it's certainly not his his writing skills, his craft skills that kind of get in the way it's the the plots become so discursive and there's so many different points mm-hmm. of view and characters it becomes hard to manage but this scene the one in the sept and um that scene did remind me oh you know martin is really quite a good um wordsmith he will use from time to time the wind to represent the old gods and in this case I'm not sure that it's the case. I don't know that that is the truth here. But the wind has almost a supernatural force in Martin's world. Uh, and this is sort of an example. Well, this was this wind was actually moved by a shadow mon- monster or something. Um, but I'm always sort of attentive to what the wind is doing, you know, uh, whenever it is mentioned. Yeah. He uses wind, I think, like Guillermo del Toro uses light. <laughs> That's a great analogy. I'm a big del Toro <laughs> fan, but if there's light, especially if there are little dust yeah. motes captured in the light, you know that something magical is, uh-huh. is happening and something serious is going it's on. It's kind of like, um, you know, when there's a ghost in the room, sometimes the actor will, you can see their breath. Right. Yeah, something like that. Yes. That's sort of like, I know I know the language of this story, right? That That's sort of... The, the language of the horror, uh, you know, that there's something supernatural amiss. Uh, notable introductions in this chapter. Uh, well, of course, we're introduced to the shadow for the first time. Iman Koi, we meet for the first time. And we are introduced to Brienne's vendetta against Stannis. Um, notable departures. Well, Renly, we say goodbye to Renly, and I think we say goodbye to the Shadow as well. Uh, you know, we're not done talking about it, but I think, I think that sort of the the Shadow functions as sort of a, a trump card that gets placed on the discard pile after it's used or something like that. <laughs> well, this does raise a question that I had. Maybe we can we can throw this sure. in there. Um, I can't recall, and I didn't go back and look. In the books, do we have the scene where Melisandre gives birth to the shadow like we do in the show? No. I didn't think yeah, so. Yeah. Because I, I, I remember seeing that in the show and being 
stricken by the nature of that scene. It was a very horrific for, scene for sure. It's, uh, it's disturbing. Yeah. And poor Davos is sitting there. Well, and kudos <laughs> yeah. to the show for that because, I mean, I wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have thought to include it, but it is one of the more memorable images, right? Right. Um, yeah. All right. So let's, yeah, we're talking about show differences. Let's talk about the uh, the show differences here. None of the stuff in the sept happens in the show. Of course, I think in general the um, the showrunners played down the religious elements wherever they could, um, and uh, I, I think that Braden, you already mentioned that Brian sees the shadow in the show, and she becomes convinced it had the face of Stannis, where that is not in the books. In the show, Kat is the one that puts the idea of vengeance in Brienne's mind. She's grieving over, you know, her dead king. And Kat says, if if you don't live, you cannot get revenge. You can't avenge him. And so in the books, it's different. It's like Brienne, like, swears an oath three times. "I I will kill Stannis or I will avenge him or whatever. But in the show, this is Kat's idea. So I thought that was an interesting shift. Right. Especially given in the show, Brienne sees the shadow. And in the book, only Kat sees the shadow. True and interesting. Yeah. One other thing that I noted is that Kat almost functions as, how should I put this? She almost functions as sort of like the leader of, of an attack squad. In the tent, she actually does hit a knight on the back of the head. She's the one that suggests you need to come with me. She gets out of the tent. She directs people how to leave. And then when she has her troop and she's leaving with her company, she says, any man who gets in our way, cut him down. And so she kind of assumes the role of the team leader in a way that is disruptive of the gender norm. We don't get any of that in the show. I was struck by that too, particularly at the end when she says, you know, we're going to ride out and anyone who's in the way, we ride them down, we cut mm-hmm. them down, even though these people, I guess she understands in a way that they're going to be blamed, either her or Brienne. She does say, we need to get out of here because it's known that we were there. Right. And until this point, she very much is playing the, you know, the role of the peace weaver, right? And, you know, she's trying to get these brothers to get along. She's praying for peace. She's She's pleading with Renly. Let's let's hold a great council, and then the people can vote on who the next king's going to be. Like she suggests something along those lines, and yet when this happens, it's almost something. Some key shift happens. Like no, now I'm in survival mode. Now I'm a mother who's afraid for my son, and and violence is is th- this is going to be my story is going to be about violence from here on out. And this goes back to. What I was saying earlier about uh, she seems to have been repossessed mm-hmm. of purpose. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. And I think this is sort of a key shift. Um, you know, even after Ned dies, it's not like she's a creature of vengeance. Uh, she's sort of on her path to that. But this is sort of a galvanizing moment for her. I think Catelyn in the books is a a bit more nuanced and more powerful figure than in the show. I think you're right. In the show, she, she's sometimes stubborn and, and petulant and annoying. Yeah. Um, the, I think the showrunners, I mean, with a lot of the characters, they flatten them just a little bit, understandably. But I think they they leaned into her as the as the mother, sometimes throwing in the even like the the kind of the nagging part of mm-hmm. it or the babying part of it. Yeah. Though in the books here. Um, Catelyn is a is a more capable and dangerous figure. I mean, the fact that in the books, you know, she she's re- resurrected as a as a water drowned, starting to rot zombie. Yeah. yeah, she is. Which is crazy. Whenever I remember it, and they obviously left it in, out of the show entirely. Yeah, I but... did. That is one of my big regrets about the show. Like, I didn't hate the last season like everyone else did, but I did re- regret that Bran wasn't better used, and I did regret that we never saw Lady Stoneheart. So those are sort of my <laughs> two big gripes, but I'm willing to overlook them. 
Um, yeah, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Uh, this is a, this is a really important sort of hinge chapter. It occupies almost a midpoint of the book. It really does change the clash of kings going forward. So thank you for helping me unpack this. Yeah, my pleasure. Of course. And now throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. The smoke baby became mm-hmm. a smoke man and then became a smoke assassin. And then and then bounced. <laughs> yeah, he was gone. That was it for him. That and that okay, so here we go, right? Renly, uh Renly is kind of you know, he doesn't want to yield anything to the Starks and he's making a case, and then Smoke Man comes in, kills Renly, leaves. And I kind of feel like this is this is this is where I'm, you know, I'm I'm willing to go on the magical journey, but I'm kinda of like I feel like that smoke man could have done a little more work. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of setup for Smoke Man. Yeah. Smoke man went through a lot of he grew up, he be you know, he could have been a smoke teen, still we don't know. Um but he comes in and he... Well, he knew how to leave on a high note. Well, know? yeah, but I just feel like, you know, it's like, well, while I'm at, while I'm here in smoke form and no one probably knows, like, no one's formulated a plan for, like, how do we destroy the smoke man? Smoke man's brand new. Smoke man, I feel like, could have just sauntered through tents and just wiped up. But I guess they, they, guess they want the army, right? But I feel like there could have been more work. It could be, like, smoke man is a little bit ADHD. It's like you give him one step of instructions yeah if the instructions are okay first kill this guy then go into that tent then kill that guy it's like you've lost him well he was a smoke baby just like just real like right previous yeah right he the guy is literally like two hours old if that baby crawls out gets all big and they go okay now here's what i want you to do <laughs> like no 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 i just stop interrupting <laughs> no, the- <laughs> Like all right, look, look, just, look, you focus, all right. And they're like, they're like explaining. Go, in, I want you to wipe out the army. And, and he's like stabbing it with his smoke fingers in the sand. Like, yeah, yeah, no, no, that you're not. That's not it. That's not. It's not over. 